Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and how a bit of gossip can save a life. I'm Rob Woodland, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Most of us have at some point read about a randomized trial showing that some product or service really helps people out. Uh, Maybe exercise programs for mental health or free vapes in order to help people quit smoking or electric cook stoves to reduce indoor air pollution and premature death. Sometimes those studies suggest the intervention is incredibly cost-effective, offering huge benefits relative to their cost. And other times they might look too expensive to be a high priority. But either way, we look at a summary of the study, think, huh, that's cool, and close our browser tab and never to think about it again. I mean, what are you going to do? Start an electric cook stove business? Well, today's guest, Varsha Venugopal, decided to quit her job, roll up her sleeves, and do the equivalent of starting an electric cook stove business. Except it isn't air pollution she's been trying to fix, it's young children going unvaccinated, just because their parents didn't make it a top priority to get them back to the doctor's office on time. We talk about a lot of big, high-level ideas in this show, and of course, I, I totally love that stuff. But none of those ideas matter if nobody figures out how to convert them into something that someone can actually do, a project that a real person can implement in this messy world of actual people, and then figure out how to scale it so they can go on and make a meaningful difference. We haven't had so many episodes on that kind of thing lately, so I decided to go out looking for people on the sharp end of taking ideas about how to have a big impact and then executing on them. Varsha stood out for the process she used to figure out what to do, the success of her and her team building a presence in India, and her ability to explain all of it. Varsha and her colleagues are still in the thick of growing, so fortunately they haven't forgotten what things are really like. I think everyone can get something out of this episode, but that's particularly the case if you want to start your own project or work in global health and development. All right, without further ado, here's Varsha Venugopal. Today I'm speaking with Varsha Venugopal. Varsha started out her career studying urban and regional planning, then working as a local governance specialist at the World Bank for five years. She then did a master's in development management at LSE before working at the Natural Resource Governance Institute, the global health nonprofit called Options Consultancy Services, and the International Governance and Risk Institute. But in 2019, though, she made a big career change and co-founded the nonprofit Savita, which aims to ensure that every child in India gets all of their basic vaccinations, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so thanks for coming on the podcast, Varsha. Thanks for having me. I hope we'll get to talk about the challenges of scaling up a new health nonprofit and what you've learned from being a nonprofit founder. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? So we're a two-year-old startup nonprofit working on improving uptake of routine immunization in India. Two things that are top priorities for us right now. One is we're in the middle of an iterative cycle for one of our programs, the Ambassador Program, to figure out the best ways to scale it up. And second, we are planning an upgrade of our monitoring and evaluation system, which will allow us to make a more compelling case for the impact of our programs. I think it's a particularly important moment now compared to any other moment, because we know for the last couple of years, there has been millions of kids who have dropped off in India, as well as abroad as a result of COVID-related lockdowns. And we have this huge sense of urgency to get these children back on track. Yeah, nice. Okay, well, we'll come back to Suvita in just a second. But first off, maybe let's quickly zoom out and consider the kind of broader context of the, of the problem that you're working on. So basically, how, how many kids are going unvaccinated around the world? And I guess, how many, how many end up dying as a result? We have 19 million children who fail to receive their basic vaccinations by the time of their first birthdays each year. We know as a result, one child dies every minute because of vaccine preventable disease. Oh, is that so So at the first birthday, they haven't received like any or most of the vaccinations? Or is it just that 19 million haven't done the, done the full schedule that's recommended? 
So 19 million children are under-vaccinated, and that's a really good question because there is something called the zero dose, which means they haven't received any vaccinations. Mm -hmm. But with these 19 million children, what we are specifically referring to is that they are under-vaccinated, which means they haven't completed their full dose by the time they turn one. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, so you're saying a child dies every minute? So that that's where you get kind of the 1.7 or 1.8 million people dying a year. Are there harms other than, than death? I'm guessing getting lots of these diseases might have long-term health consequences for people who are, you know, babies that, that even survive. Yeah, absolutely. So we know we are talking about vaccines saving two to three million child deaths every year. We know there are huge social and economic benefits at both individual and societal levels. So we know that there are costs related to medical treatments and also related to income and productivity losses, as well as, I mean, one can imagine the whole suffering of family and friends. There is also some evidence of association between vaccination and childhood development and educational outcomes. I think broadly, there is a fair degree of consensus between experts that for every $1 invested in expanding immunization, there are about $60 returns in social, economic and environmental benefits. Yeah, I mean, I think the cost-benefit analysis on vaccines almost always shows these wild ratios between the between the benefit and the cost. And I guess the, the main questions that I've seen asked are like, well, how do we get more people to, to actually get these vaccines? Because I guess all, all of the like the load, the really low hanging fruit has been taken. So where, where, where it's straightforward to get vaccines to, to kids, a lot of work has been done to do that. But then the ones that are left, it's like, a, it's a little bit more challenging. There's something making it hard. So you see, I guess, what are the main countries where kids aren't, aren't getting vaccinated? So the big countries that are there are Afghanistan, Pakistan, DRC, Ethiopia, Indonesia, Nigeria, and of course, India. India, which of course we'll come to later, has about half of these under-vaccinated children. So the 19 million, we have about 10 million of them in, in India. It's a little bit surprising that India accounts for such a large fraction, because I think of, you know, India is not a rich country, but it's not one of the poorest or one of the one of the least functional countries in the world. It's, it seems like it's kind of punching above its weight in terms of under-vaccination, perhaps, relative to what people might expect. Exactly. And that's where it's really useful to get into some of the details. And what we see is while it may be a supply side problem in some of the other countries, in the case of India, it's very much a demand side problem. And by that, what I mean is it's not that kids aren't being provided the vaccine or the facilities aren't there. It's more about finding ways to motivate parents to go and complete the immunization schedule. Yeah, I guess that is one reason why you might think that there's more low-hanging fruit in India. And perhaps one reason why you're focusing on, on India is that I imagine there's many children going under-vaccinated or maybe very under-vaccinated in, you know, war-torn areas or places, very remote areas where it's very hard to get people in. And yet there's there's an enormous number of children out there who you probably, you know, you could access <laughs> relatively easily. And it's a question of getting the parents motivated to, to go and get the vaccinations. Yes. So in other countries, in, in several regions, it may be something called this last mile problem, which is more about supply chains and getting those vaccinations to these hard to reach areas. Most of that is fairly well covered in India as a result of government efforts and of other supporters such as Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance and WHO and UNICEF. So yes, absolutely. It seems very much a problem of the demand side that we are trying to address through some of our nudges. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, just to be concrete, what kind of diseases are we talking about? What are the, what are the main kind of vaccine preventable diseases that, that end up killing people? So the big ones these vaccines protect against are measles, diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, polio, hepatitis, and others. 
Yeah, who are the big players who are trying to fix this problem? I'm guessing kind of, you know, Indian government, lots of other major foundations and things like that. So one big player in this sector in the last couple of decades is Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance. And it's it's an interesting model where it encourages manufacturers to lower the vaccine prices for the poorest countries in return for long-term high volume and predictable demand from those countries. So it has a five-year funding cycle. So what that means is that it can negotiate with these manufacturers for a longer term. And instead of countries directly negotiating with these manufacturers, it, it allows it to buy in bulk for a longer period of time. And this partnership with other organizations such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and WHO and UNICEF and others has allowed it to vaccinate half the world's children at this point. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, have we been, been making a lot of progress against the, 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 the under-vaccination issue? Yes, absolutely. I think you had some figures there, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I looked this one up on uh, Our World in Data because I was curious to know how, how things were going. And it seems like we've been making massive progress. So even just in, okay, so in the, in the seven years from 2010 to 2017, I think we went from 2.8 million people dying from vaccine-preventable diseases down to 1.7, which is like a one-third yeah. drop in seven years. So it seems like we're kind of kind of killing it. Yeah, but I, if you see in there, I think more recently, it has also been stagnating. And I think that's where these problems of last mile and under vaccination and demand side challenges come in. So that's probably COVID, right? Uh, people being stuck at home and was it more than that? The last couple of years, we know the trend has to do with COVID related lockdowns with millions of additional kids dropping off. But the broader trend of stagnation seems more to do with under vaccination. For instance, you know, we have three doses of measles vaccines recommended. And even though 85% of kids worldwide got their first vaccine, it dropped to 64% for the second dose. Yeah. So you're saying like a much larger fraction of kids are getting the first dose, but then it drops off. I guess, well, it suggests that the, the parents don't object to vaccines. You might think, oh, it's like it's, it's anti, anti-vaxxers who aren't getting their kids, because I suppose that's what, that's what we're more familiar with in the UK or in, in the US. But in India, it's more just that life's very busy or it's like more difficult. You've got to go to a specific place at a specific time to get the kids the vaccines. Yeah. What's what's the what's the practical situation? Yeah, no, that's a great point, especially these days. There is so much more conversation on vaccine hesitancy and it's really useful to, I guess, emphasize that that's not the kind of challenge we are facing here. There are several reasons for this, and we can go into that, but broadly, people seem to trust vaccines, which is why they get the birth dose and they also get at least one other dose and then drop off for a variety of reasons, which have nothing to do with the supply side challenges. Yeah. So is it possible to go out and just survey Indian parents and find out, at least among those who didn't bring their kids in for the later vaccinations, what's the deal? What was the, what was the reason that they, that they didn't do it? Yes, there have been at least two surveys of this kind that have been done in India. So one was a recent survey that was conducted in 2018 of nearly 40,000 caregivers of undervaccinated children in the lowest vaccine coverage districts, where they found that the most common reason for missed appointments was an awareness gap. Then there was another nationwide survey, which is slightly older. It was conducted by UNICEF in 2009 where respondents were four times more likely to describe demand-side issues than supply-side ones when giving reasons for a child being partially or not immunized at all. So it seems largely, at least in India, the challenge is on the demand side, and there is further breakdown and hypothesis around why these parents choose not to complete the vaccination. The common barriers are around taking time off work, 
low uptake of routine immunization in rural areas where education rates are low or information can be confusing or just difficult to access. Hmm. So it seems like there's other countries at a similar income level that are managing to reach a larger fraction of kids with these later stage vaccinations. So is, is something perhaps going wrong with, with the state level health department's approaches to vaccinations in, in India? Is, is there something peculiar about the India situation that's making this a bigger issue? I don't think so. In fact, to India's credit, it is one of the top manufacturers of vaccines. Mm. It has an extensive supply of vaccination and it has an excellent health system that's rolled out to deliver these vaccines. We also know they have had successes in the past with vaccines such as polio, where there was a huge government and community and other supporters' efforts where they managed to eradicate the polio from the whole country. So I think... We are fairly confident the challenge is very much on the demand side and Mm. there isn't anything else that the government could be doing on the supply side to make this to make this better. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's push on and discuss the organization that you've made to to try to try to fix this issue in India. I guess in a nutshell, what does Savita do to try to get more more jabs in arms? So Suvita improves uptake of immunization. That's getting more Karens to complete the immunization schedule through two models. So one is sending SMS reminders directly to parents and carers. The other is something called gossip. So what's gossip? It is a very deliberate, systematic way of identifying the local community influencers and sending them regular messages and reminders. And it turns out it increased effect sizes in terms of parents taking their kids for immunization versus sending reminders directly to parents. Yeah, I was super surprised to hear that that was the second approach that you were taking. So, so we'll come back to that because I think it's really interesting. But maybe first, yeah, tell us a little bit about the history of how Savita got started. Sure. So I was introduced to effective altruism in around 2018 through an LSE mate, Kelly, Mm. who had founded Effective Giving in Netherlands and had called me over for this EA Global Conference in London in 2018. So it was my first time hearing about effective altruism. I went and read a bunch of papers and looked up articles and found it very interesting. And there's broadly this idea of We all have limited time, energy, resources, money, and we need to have the most impact. And how do we go about doing it? And focusing on this impact, neglectedness, tractability framework was Mm. very compelling. So I went to the conference, met a bunch of people, did some more research, and as a result, went through this charity incubation program in 2019. And following that, I founded this nonprofit along with my co-founder, Fiona. So I can run you through the steps that charity entrepreneurship took, if that's useful at this point, to get to the point of identifying some of the top intervention areas, which we then took on to further research and zone in on the intervention we focused on. Yeah. So, okay. So you've uh, kind of heard about these effective altruist ideas and you're thinking, maybe I want to want to start a project to tackle a neglected problem in an effective way. How did you find Fiona? And also how did you end up kind of settling on vaccinations and this approach? Yeah. So I was already working in development for more than a decade when I came across effective altruism. So I guess for me, the pivot was more about maybe slightly getting disillusioned with the areas of work I was engaging in, which was fiscal decentralization and oil, gas, mining and development, which had complex theories of change and it was harder to focus on attribution and impact. And having come across effective altruism and some of its precepts, this idea of simpler theories of change and focus on impact was was very compelling. So 
I went through charity entrepreneurship incubation, which brings together others similarly interested and has a rigorous process of identifying potential entrepreneurs. What charity entrepreneurship does is it starts by looking at some of the recommendations of GiveWell and the World Health Organization and the Copenhagen Consensus, and then does some shallow research based on several criteria, including cost effectiveness, scalability, et cetera, and additionally looks into the ITN framework impact, tractability, so neglectedness. tractability and neglectedness. Yeah. Exactly. And where they had landed was on conditional cash transfers. So Fiona happened to also be in the same incubation program. They also go through a process of trying to match different entrepreneurs to each other, and, and it turned out we were a good match. So both of us started by looking at conditional cash transfers for immunization. So conditional cash transfers was something they had already looked at. And we selected immunization based on, of course, the quality of evidence. There was external and internal validity of research and validation from experts through interviews. And in terms of India, I guess we were veering towards India for various reasons. There was a case to be made around scalability. There was also my own personal and professional networks there. So we started by looking at interventions that could potentially beat conditional cash transfers in terms of cost effectiveness. And that's when we came across this large-scale randomized trial run by the Poverty Action Lab, which was doing exactly that. So quickly about this trial, it was run in the state of Haryana, and they were looking at across seven districts. It was led by Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and others. And what they were specifically looking into was different combinations of policy tools that could have the most impact on improving uptake of routine immunization. So the three policy tools they were looking at were mobile credit directly to parents and carers, and again, different amounts and increasing at different levels, SMS reminders directly to parents and carers, and this gossip, this idea of finding influences. And what they found through this study was that the combination of SMS reminders and ambassadors was the most cost-effective. Adding local ambassadors and text messages to the government's routine immunization program increased the number of fully immunized children per dollar spent by 9.1%. So we found that extremely exciting. Was that, is that 9.1 percentage points? This is percent. percent. Okay, so yeah. in terms of the actual increase in percentage points, we know for the ambassador program, it is 10 percentage point increase. Okay, yeah. And then we did additional research on the SMS reminders and looked into some meta analysis to reach our own conclusions on that separately. Yeah. So, so some of these studies that look at the effect size, they don't think that much about cost. Did that paper like kind of do a like per dollar analysis? Yeah, exactly, which was quite exciting and interesting for us. This wasn't there in the draft papers we were looking at initially, but then the actual paper just came out a few months ago. And in the subsequent versions, they have been looking at cost effectiveness. And especially because they were looking to advise the Haryana state government on how to go about this, they were very keen to look at not just impact, but cost effectiveness. So if you just looked at impact, the combination of conditional cash transfers plus SMS plus ambassadors is the most impactful. It has the highest effect sizes. But when you look at it from the cost effectiveness perspective, it is the combination of only SMS and ambassadors. And one can see the rationale for that because 
setting up and running conditional cash transfers can be a fairly expensive operation. Yeah, interesting. So, so the idea, yeah, even though you could have more impact in one particular village doing all three, it makes more sense with a given budget to do the to do the two that are best and then try to reach more areas because I guess it's easier to scale. And yes, yes. So for us, the plan is very much to start with this SMS reminders plus ambassadors, but maybe at a later date, there may be certain pockets which lend themselves better to conditional cash transfers. It's not something we completely ruling out, but it's not something in our portfolio of programs at the moment. Yeah, so I, I didn't realize that charity entrepreneurship was, was was quite so central to getting this getting this started as it was. Because for, yeah, for those who don't know, charity entrepreneurship is this project, I guess, yeah, an incubator run by people who are very sympathetic to effective altruist ideas. And I guess they do a bunch of research where they try to kind of shortlist interventions that they would love to see people going and actually trying to implement in the real world. And then I guess they try to match those with people like you who are thinking, I want to start something, but I'm not sure exactly what, and I'm not sure who to do it with. And I guess, yeah, pair up, pair up founders and then pair them up with an idea that's a good fit for them. And then Help them help them actually get get moving. Because yeah, maybe we'll come back and talk about that later. Because it could be an excellent excellent resource or an excellent thing to go through for some people in the audience. I saw on your website that you have this kind of table summarizing the evidence on SMS reminders. And I took a quick look over, and it seemed like there was five trials that had kind of positive effects, and then five where it didn't really seem like the SMS reminders had moved the needle very much. Did you go away and kind of either yourself or get someone else to to do this kind of literature review to learn like other lessons about under what circumstances these things work, and like yeah, what things you can vary about the intervention to, to make them have a bigger impact? Mm, yeah, no, that's a great question. So our colleagues at Charity Science Health did undertake this meta-evaluation in 2019 with the nine existing randomized trials, and they found a 7.4 percentage point increase in full immunization due to SMS reminders. So then to be conservative, they also ran the meta-analysis after subjectively making various substantial discounts on the reported effect sizes. And this reduced estimated effect size is around 3.2 percentage points. So our sense is the the range of effect size is somewhere between 3.2 and 7.4. But in all these cases, the program is still cost effective. I think one point we are aware of is we were quite clear on focusing on SMS versus, say, WhatsApp, because based on our research, we could see that the smartphone penetration was still not as high as as regular phones. So we are quite keen on focusing on text messages, but we are also quite aware of the high correlation between mothers who haven't got high literacy and the kids dropping off vaccinations. So the next iteration we are quite keen to introduce is voice recordings to see how they could further reinforce the messaging that's going through the text messages. Yeah. Yeah, I was really happy to see the table that both had, you know, studies with positive results and studies with with null results where it couldn't find an effect. Because an intervention, even one that's effective, you should find some studies that by chance have found that it didn't work in this particular case, or perhaps were underpowered. There weren't enough people in the sample to detect even a real effect. And and if people aren't aware of that when they're setting out, it suggests that they haven't really been like quite comprehensive enough in looking at looking at all of the evidence out there to get a proper average kind of effect size across the full range of, of results rather than just cherry picking a few of them. Yeah, no, we we absolutely believe in making sure we look at the broad gamut of evidence that's available. This is also the additional reason why we are quite keen on introducing the ambassador program along with the SMS reminders, because Mm. there seems like the effect sizes with the ambassadors is higher and we Mm. want to make sure we can capture some of that impact on the table. 
Yeah. So were there were there any studies that didn't find an effect where it was possible to kind of identify that some particular thing had been important? You were suggesting, for example, literacy might mediate the effect of the messages. If people can't read them, then that's going to reduce the effect size pretty substantially. Yeah, there are other factors that you had to think about, about whether they would work in your specific context. Yeah, there is quite a fair degree of variation. I mean, they're obviously in different regions to begin with, these text reminders. Also, in terms of what the exact messaging itself is, mm. is there a feedback loop on whether the child actually got the vaccine and then is the next reminder that's going out in any way connected to that, etc. So there was, for each of these studies, we had to apply some of these discounts based on how similar they were to what we were planning to undertake and what that could mean in terms of the effect sizes of our intervention. Yeah. This is a bit of a demanding question to know off the top of your head, but maybe to give listeners a, a sense of kind of the, the funnel here. If you were to spend an extra $1,000 scaling up the, the program, how many SMS messages might you be able to send? And maybe how many parents would you be able to hassle through this, through this gossip mechanism? Right. So right now at the margin, we estimate we can cover an additional village. That's both SMS reminders and ambassadors for eligible parents at around $150 to $200 And given each village has about 100 children due for vaccines. So what that would mean is for $1,000, we would cover roughly six villages or 600 children. So now taking into account the JPAL study, which in the original paper suggested a 14 percentage point increase in uptake as a result of the ambassador program, we discounted to 10 percentage point increase. We think by spending the additional $1,000 and reaching 600 children, we would be reaching an additional 60 children that will be immunized. Okay, so something like $20 per additional child immunized or reaching the full immunization schedule. That sounds right. And is it possible to give a rough approximation of how many many lives that will save or how many children you have to get extra vaccinations in order to to save a life? That's the bit that gets complicated. So the last time we looked into this, what we did was plug our numbers into the GiveWell model for new incentives, Mm. which is a GiveWell top charity working in Northwest Nigeria using conditional cash transfers to improve uptake of routine immunization. So we borrowed some of their figures and adapted it by plugging the relevant data for our own context. By doing that, we estimate we can save one life for roughly every 100 extra children vaccinated. So vaccinating 60 extra children, we save 0.6 statistical lives. Okay, so Having said like, that, yeah, though, yeah. I realize we plugged into a previous model, which has recently changed in the GiveWell page. So at that time, I think it's a 2017 model, we could save a child's life for maybe something in the region of $1,700. Hmm. But I see the GiveWell top charities now are somewhere between $3,000 to $5,000 for yeah. every additional child's life saved. So we need to go back and <laughs> and, and yeah, question that. Yeah, they're, they're, the numbers are always changing. Uh, we'll, we'll stick up a link to some of the GiveWell resources. I guess the back of the envelope way that I would estimate this is you've got these numbers, I guess, from I don't know, the World Bank or the World Health Organization of how many kids in India are not being fully vaccinated. And then also how many children in estimates of how many children in India are dying of vaccination preventable diseases. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could say, well, you just look at the ratio there and you say, well, if there's 10 million children that are you know, going through each cohort, not fully vaccinated, and then you know, 100,000 of them are dying, then you'd say, well, it's one in 100. So it's a 100 to one ratio. So if you could vaccinate 100 extra children, you might save, save one life. Well, that, mm. Is, is, mm. Yeah, is, is, that, is that like non, non-idiotic way of doing it? That sounds reasonable. Though now having the GiveWell model and we see that as the gold standard, yeah. we would rather we would Go rather that follow yeah. that. 
on how the money gets spent on the program. Given the early stage we are at, the funds that we raise now will play an important role in bringing down this cost per life saved for future work. And and we see three main ways of doing that. So one is the straightforward economies of scale. You add an additional district, it brings down the overall cost if we are not adding more office size, for instance. The other is process improvement. So for instance, we are currently hiring for a tech role, which we think for instance, can bring bring through some exponential increases in our efficiencies. There are also so many ways we are iterating our nomination survey and recruitment survey, which would allow for increased efficiencies. And the final is this process innovation, which is, I guess, a, a still an area we need to explore further. There may be some huge exponential gains we could make by reducing costs by, say, 40%. For instance, if we could find the right influencer without having to go through the whole nomination process, for instance. So this third piece is higher impact, but lower likelihood. So I think there is something unusual about the impact of our funding as a startup nonprofit compared to some of the more established GiveWell programs, because our model is still quite malleable and developing. And some of the lessons we can learn from this funding can help us get more future funding, which could be used more more effectively. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You're still kind of improving and developing and like reducing your per child reach costs. So yeah, you hope to kind of increase that cost effectiveness over time. And I guess, yeah, the people who get in early help to fund that development of the of the product, basically, and uh, yeah, could maybe have a bigger contribution. Yep. So SMS reminders is pretty intuitive. I guess you get numbers of parents, maybe from the hospital where, where a child was born, and then you message them about the vaccination schedule. What's this gossip I- intervention then? So the gossip intervention is in the original JPAL study, the surveyors were sent to a random set of 17 households and they asked several questions. But the main question is, if there was a fair in town, who is most likely to tell you about it? Mm. We then run an algorithm to identify the top gossips or community influencers. And the surveyors then go back to these top influencers and recruit them as immunization ambassadors. So that is the ambassador program in the JPAL study. What we did as a result of COVID was pivot to a remote model, which already brings down the cost significantly in that we call up a random set of households to identify these influencers and then call these influencers to recruit them as as ambassadors. So compared to the SMS model, this model at at the moment is still not as mature and we're Mm. still iterating to find the the most cost-effective way of doing this. Yeah. Okay. So so you identify a village. I guess it seems like a significant fraction of India's population is living in villages of 500 to 1,000 people or so. Is that kind of where you're targeting? That's the, the, the standard ratio we're using, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so you call up a random bunch of households and you say, yeah, who would tell you about an event? And then you pick maybe the person who is most often mentioned and get their phone number and then call them up. And then you say to them, well, yeah, what, what do you say on the phone? It's, just, it's like an odd call to get. We have some standard language we use. And in fact, we are iterating with some of this, which also seems to increase the success rates. But broadly, it is saying that you have been identified as a community influencer and we would like you to be an immunization ambassador. There is no monetary cost involved in this. It is a voluntary exercise. We would be sending you regular reminders on immunization camps. Are you willing to be an ambassador? Yeah. And what do people say to that? So we conducted a pilot study earlier this year. 
for two purposes. One was to see if a remote version works and the other was to see if ambassadors act. And the answer to both questions was broadly yes. So in more than 90% of the cases, when people were contacted randomly, they were able to give us not only the name of an influencer, but also their phone number. And then in more than 95% of the cases, the influencers agreed to be to be ambassadors. Yeah. The challenge we had was reaching these influencers possibly because they are influencers. They're not around most of the times. It's, it's unclear. <laughs> that's just, that's just a, a supposition. But that's the bit we are now iterating to try and call at different times of the day or different days of the week to mm. get to them. The other bit was, are these ambassadors then sharing the information? So one thing we did early on was give them a phone number that they could then share with parents and ask the parents to give a missed call to enroll into the SMS Reminders program. Hmm. And I think we had more than 30 people sign up in the first week, which again gives us some confidence that the ambassadors are sharing this information and people are are receiving it and somehow responding to it. Yeah. So just trying to like build a better model of like exactly what this looks like in my head. So do you know, are these like cool people or very extroverted people or like high status people in the village, like maybe someone who's involved in local politics? Do you know what kind of person we're talking about? That's a great question. So in the JPAL study, they looked at both trusted people as well as community influencers and see the interaction effects. And it turns out it is the community influencer bit, which seems to be causing the biggest impact. Other than the fact that we know about 18% of our influencers are women, which is kind of similar to the JPAL study. We are very curious to better understand the motivations of the ambassadors and why they take it on. And that's the kind of thing you don't get in an RCT. So that's yeah. something we want to go there and, and interrogate further. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And do you know kind of what conversations they're having? Are, are they, I was wondering, are they, are they going around and kind of shaming parents for being like lousy parents because they're, I don't know, not vaccinating their kids? I know there's this whole thing of people policing like other parents' behavior and things like that. Or is it more like they're reminding people of this fun vaccination event that they can go to? What's, yeah, what's, what's the conversation I should picture in my head? That's a good question. And honestly, we do not know. In the study itself, there was some most enthusiastic people in the JPAL research which put up posters and they deliberately removed them from their study to ensure they could focus on on the intrinsic gossip element, element, exactly. So it seems something about this intrinsic motivation, ambassadors by just being influencers are, are able to take on that role, how they actually share that information is not something we have figured out yet, except that they seem to be able to do it. Yeah. Okay. So just to like have, have a picture in the head of the, of the magnitude of the benefit, you're saying it, it increases vaccination rates by 10 percentage points, and that's about 27%. Mm-hmm. So, so huge magnitude. How large is the SMS reminder effect again, separately? Somewhere between three and seven. Three, three and 7%. Yeah. Okay. So I'm guessing the SMS reminders are a bunch cheaper because you're just sending texts. And I guess they're probably easier to scale as well because you just have to get a bunch of phone numbers and then stick them in some piece of software that sends out text messages. On the other hand, it seems like the ambassadors have a larger effect size, maybe a more robust result in the, in the RCT. How do you kind of trade off this like easiness of scalability and, and low cost? Yeah, so we know SMS reminders, you're absolutely right, are easier to scale up. In fact, in one of the two states we work in, Maharashtra, we already have a memorandum of understanding with the state government, which allows us to to rapidly scale up across the state. 
Having said that, we are quite aware that it's the ambassador program which seems to be having some of these large effect sizes and we're really excited to overlay it on top of the SMS reminders program. With that in mind, we are now introducing ambassador program in Maharashtra, we hope. And in the other state, Bihar, we have already completed this pilot and we just this week have also started exploring an additional district, Patna. I think for us, the fact that we've already moved to a remote version makes it much cheaper than mm-hmm. the original version. So that's one. Um, so in the original version, people would go to the village. And, exactly. Oh, see, yeah, so yeah. the fact that we are now calling up these people makes the overall cost effectiveness higher, we would think, depending on what the actual impact is. Mm. So the big focus for us is to make the ambassadors as scalable as possible. Luckily, we know it already starts off scalable, maybe not as much as SMS reminders. It's fairly light touch. It's just about identifying these right influencers. There is no component of training involved. It's more about tapping into these existing social networks and influencers who seem to have a natural tendency to spread this information. So yes, while SMS reminders are more mature and faster to scale up, we are waiting to get to that same point with ambassadors so we could scale them up together. Maybe I've got the wrong picture in my head here. Because I, well, I guess so. The SMS is pretty easy to scale, but I guess you have to get the numbers, got to get permission to do it, and you got to like put them through the software, clean up the data, and so on. But it sounds like, in fact, like getting some ambassadors from these villages is not that hard at all. Because you're making a bunch of phone calls, getting some names, and then you call them up, and you're not putting them through some difficult training process. You're kind of just asking them, could they do this? And it might be a relatively fast conversation, and then potentially you've covered a whole village, right? Exactly. So it is not that far from a scalable model, but still compared to SMS. So let me just, I guess, quickly go over the process involved with SMS, because even with that, it's a fairly different model in in the two states we work in and has obviously different impacts on cost effectiveness. So the first step is data collection. So in the case of Bihar, we have a couple of team members, Ram and Ravi, who actually visit the, the primary health centers. And under this government partnership, collect the relevant data from birth registers. These have already been recorded on paper by the clinician with consent of family, and the data is encrypted at this point of collection. So then once they have this data, they digitize it from paper birth records for our database. And then the final step is this data processing, which is this downstream process where the data is sent out as personalized reminders. And we use a third-party scheduling software, which connects through an API to our bulk SMS provider. So what this means is, in the case of Bihar, while it sounds like it's an easily scalable model, there is an element of surveyors actually having to visit these primary health centers and collecting the data. Compared to that, in Maharashtra state, because we have this MOU with the state government, we pretty much miss the first two steps and directly go to the third step. We just directly get this reproductive child health data from the state governments and can roll out the messages across the district. So obviously, that has implications on the cost effectiveness of both models. Having said that, something I remember from your podcast with Max Roser, Mm. just the importance of getting good quality data, Mm. I think... I'd like to think we are doing some additional service with just getting better data from these primary health centers in Bihar. And we know the state immunization officer is is pleased by the fact that, you know, there is a higher quality data now available, which wasn't available before. So there is a difference in the quality of this reproductive and child health data in both these states. And I guess there is an additional benefit we are providing by just allowing for better data collection for the government as well. Maybe I was, I was kind of asking this earlier, but I kind of want to ask again because I think it's just kind of important. 
it seems like parents don't want their kids to die. And the benefits of vaccinations are really big. And they don't, the parents don't object to vaccinations. What's going on that's causing the parents not to, not to really prioritize as a really high priority, making sure that their kids get the later vaccinations? Maybe they don't appreciate that like one in every 20 or something of the children who don't get vaccinated end up getting these horrible illnesses and suffering severe consequences. So to put this in context for India, we have about 26 million children born every year and we have 16 million children that are completing the vaccination schedule. So we're talking about the remaining 10 million. Now of these 10 million, we have 2 million who do not touch the hospital system at all, the ones that are called the zero dose kids. We have 1 million that get the first dose, that's you know BCG and tuberculosis A. Hep B and OPB, that's polio, but then disappear. So just the birth dose. And then we have these 7 million kids who are getting the birth dose and at least one other vaccination and are dropping off. And that's our primary end user we have in mind, though we do think we can probably make some dent with the other 3 million kids as well. Mm. So one of the big reasons we think uh, and there has been some research that they drop off is to do with time inconsistency argument. Mm. I think it's something referred to by Banerjee and Duflo in their book, Poor Economics as well. This whole idea that I value my present very differently from the way I value my future, right? So even when I'm making decisions on exercising or gym, it's all something I'd rather postpone for all these other myriad intrusions on my time in the present. And I think some of that is what's at play for for these parents as well. So caregivers may miss their appointments for various reasons. They could just be forgetting about them. They may not have the right information to accurately understand the benefits. We do know sometimes they don't know how many appointments they need to come for. Or they just don't want to take a day off work. They don't want to deal with a crying child. They don't want to take the bus to go somewhere for vaccination. So all reasons which possibly by small nudges in the margins could be addressed. Yeah, so so their best guess is it's just the, the basic thing that we can all relate to of you put something off and you put something off because it's kind of a, a pain in the ass to do and no particular day is it feels like the day that you want to go and do the vaccination when it when it requires crossing town or yeah, dealing with your baby uh, not wanting to get an injection. Yes, and this is exactly where it's really important to reinforce that it's very different from COVID vaccine hesitancy or other kinds of vaccine hesitancy that may exist somewhere, which is possibly far more complicated and involves issues of trust. I mean, here we know because they've come in for the birth dose and at least one other dose that they broadly trust the vaccines and believe it's it's a, it's a public good, but for a myriad of reasons are then dropping off because of just being overwhelmed with their daily lives. So this is a, it's maybe a little bit more like, how do you get people to stop getting late fees on paying their bills or something like that? Some, some other like unpleasant erg task that people put off and then, and then they end up suffering because of it. Yeah. And that's the kind of areas where some of these nudge kind of mechanisms mm. seem to have the most effective. impact, right? And I think Duflo and Banerjee, of course, have talked more about it. And Cass Sunstein in your podcast is, has, has done the whole research on it. And the different ways one can nudge people in the margin for something like this, where they broadly trust the intervention, but have not gotten around to completing it. Yeah, actually, maybe it's more like the retirement savings thing, where people do not set up their retirement savings properly, or they'll continue paying 
paying this, you know, 1% fee on their savings for like decades, because they could never be bothered going and doing the paperwork to change it. And then it ends up costing them like often $100,000 or hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of their life. Well, that's like a case where the consequences are very big. But yeah, and the UK government, I think has been quite good at embracing some of this. And they have a whole team set up, BIT, I think. Yeah, behavioral Um, insights team. Exactly. That's That's also been quite influential in how we should be responding to COVID. And I remember early on, there was this research on whether organ donation should be a default on your license. Mm. And I think putting that on as a default dramatically increased the number of people who then chose organ donation just because it wasn't something you had to check out versus checking in. Okay, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, when you were looking at the studies on the SMS reminders and the the ambassadors from Banerjee and the the others at J-PAL, were there any kind of weaknesses to the research or or perhaps missing components that, that worried you at all? I think the questions you ask when you're trying to scale up an intervention are quite different from those in a research study. So while we are quite excited with the intervention and its impact, we do have some questions which are all around how can we scale this rapidly, right? So we already pivoted to a remote version, but we still have some open questions. I think one big question that an RCT can't answer is about the mechanism. So what is fundamentally changing at the community level as a result of these interventions? So SMS reminders, we think, are increasing salience. Ambassadors, we hypothesize, are somehow changing trust and norms in the community. But this is something that's still an open question that we would need some additional clarity on. I think another element of this is any sense on where most of the effects come from would be really useful to know. Could we have a few super ambassadors, for instance, so we don't have to go through the whole nomination process? So again, that's a question we hope to get answers to through our own M&E processes. I think other features of the study design, a big one is, does the impact change over time? Now, if these ambassadors, as we suspect, are actually changing norms and trust, then we don't need to be hiring or finding ambassadors every year. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a one-off thing. But obviously, again, our cost-effectiveness calculations and our ideas on impact changes, if we have to go back in and find ambassadors on a routine, say, annual basis. The other bit is the SMS. Um, In the JPAL study, they only enrolled children who had already shown up for at least one appointment, and they only sent out SMSs to either 33% or 66% of those people. In our case, we enroll all children who have been born in a public facility, and we send out messages to all of them. So intuitively, we think we have higher impact on that one, but again, open to studying further. We are talking to JPAL colleagues on all of this and hope to get closer to the answer soon. Yeah. You mentioned super ambassadors. What, what are super ambassadors? So just the idea that if a small number of ambassadors are responsible for the highest mm. effect, are there ways we can directly reach them versus going through this whole nomination process? Again, if we get closer to understanding the motivations of these ambassadors, maybe there are ways, maybe like you were asking, are they always leaders? Maybe they're of a certain education, of a certain caste. Anything else it could correlate to would help us then go, right, let's just go for... Narrow in on that. Narrow in on that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, so, so that's where some of this like qualitative information about like how are they having the effect? And, yeah, what, what kinds of people are they? And what are they actually saying to other people would, yeah, is, is really useful for them like having theories about what things to test next. 
So uh, yeah, let's let's come back to Savita. Yeah, how many people have you managed to reach so far? I guess you're, you're only two years in, so it's kind of early stage, still potentially finding product market fit to some degree. So through our SMS Reminders program, we currently reach 350,000 parents across several states, but the main new states we are enrolling from are Bihar and Maharashtra. I mentioned this MOU we recently signed with the Maharashtra state government, which allows us to access and scale SMS Reminders across the state. We are also in discussions with the state immunization officer in Bihar to scale SMS reminders across two districts. So while we reached 350,000 parents so far, we plan to reach another 150,000 over the next year. With the ambassador program, the remote pilot that we conducted, we reached 5,000 eligible children, and we are hoping to double it by the end of this year. Okay. So you're reaching quite a bit more people with the SMS stuff, I suppose, because it is slightly more work to, or you have to yeah. train people to find the uh, the ambassadors and so on. Yeah, what's what's the vision for a fully mature Savita? How, how many people might you might you reach in the fullness of time? We want to solve this problem of under-immunization and drop-off rate in India. So we have six priority states, which have more than 70% of the under-immunized kids. And we have a few plans on how to get there. I think the default idea is that we would be running certain call centers and be able to reach at least across those six states and have a footprint. But having said that, I think there may be some other endgame options we want to actively explore over the next few months. One is we advise the governments themselves, and they take on some of this work, or we partner with other institutions working closely with the government like WHO or UNICEF, who are already based in state government offices. Another idea is potentially identifying other nonprofits within local contexts who understand the local area and can possibly quickly hire people or send out reminders and we train them. I think our focus is very much on developing an operations manual over the next few months to then explore are there some quick exponential wins we can have in terms of scaling up through other ways, in addition to, of course, replicating and scaling up ourselves. Yeah. So what's, yeah, what's the, I guess, the biggest impediment or the biggest challenge that you foresee kind of getting up to that much larger scale that you want to achieve? So I think the first is the fundamental challenge with designing and implementing a program which has proven evidence at a much smaller scale. So any general challenge of scaling up and ensuring the effect sizes remain the same how do we make sure there isn't a reduction in the fidelity of the design? Can we have the same degree of oversight of these surveyors is the big one. I think the other big one for us is walking the line of innovating versus scaling, something I mentioned earlier. There are certain funders who are quite keen on us growing in certain ways, which may or may not perfectly align with our strategic priorities. And especially at this stage for us, should we be reaching one additional district or a few more additional districts versus making some of those investments, which may not see that direct impact on the ground in terms of additional life saved, but may then build up to that exponential increase at a future date. So making some of those decisions is, I guess, high leverage, but also high stress. Yeah. So so what's the situation with the funders? There's some that just want to scale up the existing thing exactly the same. And maybe there's others who would rather try something new and try to improve the model. Is, Is that it? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, this is an observation, and I'm not sure where I land myself, but I do see how within the EA funders, there is 
a much more focus on us delivering by ourselves, right? So mm. the kind of organizations we see, AMF or new incentives, they are rolling out the programs by themselves. Mm. Outside EA, I think one observation I have is a lot of these venture philanthropy kind of funders are very keen for nonprofits to have an end game from day one. And their idea on end game or sustainability is that highly likely the government needs to take it on. So what is that pathway for the government to take it on needs to be kind of embedded in your pilot stage itself. For us, we are somewhere in the middle. We have done the pilot. We are working closely with our government partners and supporting them. We are also replicating ourselves. And our next stage is to try and figure out, are we continuing to grow and become that possibly call center model? Or mm. are there ways we could be training state governments or approaching other institutions to take on some of that role? So I think there is some fundamental difference in how this is viewed by funders. I think even within... EA, there are different ways I see that organizations have progressed. You have the AMF model, which is, you know, 10 staff. And I see their key role or key capabilities around raising funds and identifying local partners on the ground who are highly credible and then setting up extensive rigorous M&E systems to monitor how they're performing. But by themselves, they are a fairly small team. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have an organization like New Incentives, which is a hundred plus team across Northwest Nigeria, operationally rolling out conditional cash transfers by themselves. So a big question for us is, where do we land in that yeah. spectrum and, and how should we be progressing? And some of that takes a lot of experimentation and iteration over time. And what that means is, it's a, it's a term I've heard some of our colleagues mention, this value of death time frame, where we are not exactly the new, shiny, innovative startup on the block, but we are not the organization that has it all figured out and are ready to scale. We're kind of somewhere in the middle, so trying to find funders who are okay with that level of uncertainty and buy into the, the idea of experimentation for a while longer. Yeah. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think of the idea that the end game ought to be that, I guess, the state level departments of health in India basically absorb your staff and, and your project and just start doing it because I suppose they have the revenue raising capacity and maybe the, the, the economies of scale more broadly to do this you know, in a sustainable way? It makes perfect sense in an ideal world. Hmm. <laughs> the governments should be taking this on. The challenge is that the reason nonprofits such as ours exist is because of some kind of market failure or government failure. Mm. So at the moment, the government is not taking it on to a level of rigor we would like, and therefore we exist. Having said that, in an ideal scenario, we would want the governments to take it on in the long run, which is why we are working very closely with them. Also, so we can identify other opportunities to support them and find ways to build their technical capacity to take this on in the long run. It's interesting that you say it seems like the more effective altruist minded donors are more interested in just delivering, just like scaling the project that you're doing. Whereas it's maybe the, the, the less effective altruist minded donors who are more interested in this handoff to the government. You might think that it could be easily be the reverse where the people with the effective altruist mindset are like, well, wouldn't it be much better if we could just fund this for a little while and then have the government take it over and they could you know, deliver it to more people and we wouldn't have to pay for it anymore. Do you know what's going on there? Possibly. 
I think it just comes down to risk tolerance. Mm. And I think even within the EA community, there are certain individuals and organizations. So for instance, Founders Pledge has been involved in funding us because they think we could be as cost effective or more cost effective than the top GiveWell charities, even though we may not be there yet. Having said that, yes, I think there is possibly less risk tolerance for some of the larger funders who mm. would rather have us there already before they choose to, to fund us. Yeah. Okay, so the motives and interests of the funders is one issue. Yeah, are there other challenges to, to reaching your full scale? Well, another challenge is our continued focus on m and So when I worked in my previous organizations, the World Bank and Soros Foundation, we had strong m and processes in place. That's and monitoring focus, and evaluation. Yes, monitoring <laughs> and evaluation. And, and focus on better understanding how our programs are running and what's the impact. Having said that, when I came across effective altruism and its tenets, the whole idea of using rigorous evidence as a starting point to determine which interventions to focus on was quite novel and, and exciting and was part of the rationale for convincing me to move into this area. So RCTs as a starting point for choosing interventions makes a lot of sense and, and, mm. and clearly something we're bought into. The other bit is then figuring out when we should roll out a randomized trial for our program itself and what that could mean. So at the moment, given we have this large scale, high quality randomized trial that's just been released, we think we can kind of ride on its coattails for a while longer. But the next challenge for us would be within the next five years, figuring out how we can set up and implement a randomized trial. I guess an ongoing debate for us and just something to be aware of is within the broader community, we have seen organizations, funders backing off because the randomized trials produced mixed results. And some of it is a lot to do with just communicating the results and understanding the nuance of the results, which sometimes gets lost and is seen as right. The, you know, the program had null effects. So, you know, they, whatever they're doing is not impactful. And so we are very cognizant that at an early stage, we don't want to get kind of stuck in that trajectory and want to have additional confidence in our own interventions before we choose to run our own randomized trial. Yeah. So you're saying a potential trap or a potential problem would be what if someone tries to replicate these RCTs and finds that in this second case, the SMS messages or the ambassadors don't work or the effect size is a lot smaller. And so then what would you say to your funders? And maybe you want to be able to point to work that you've done assessing your own impact in exactly your context because you are measuring it and be able to say, well, we do have a good sense of what impact we're having at least. Yes. So we have some monitoring and evaluation we are conducting already, which gives us increased confidence in our work, both on the SMS and the ambassador side. And yes, if somebody else were to run a randomized trial on some intervention that broadly sounds like ours and comes out with some, you know, results which are not aligned with ours, it's then harder to control some of that communications around it. So at some point, we would want to run a randomized trial on our own programs to, A, of course, increase our confidence. We are fairly confident it's working, but also to ensure that we are on the right track before we scale it up to a much larger scale. I guess a non-crazy view might be this has been tested quite a lot already. You know, there's been a big study done by the very best people who do this kind of work and they found that it worked. The effect was pretty big. It also, it's very intuitive that would that would have this effect of getting more parents to vaccinate their kids. Yeah, it's not a wacky intervention that you would have guessed wouldn't work. And so maybe it's a waste of your attention or a waste of money to be going and doing all that much monitoring and evaluation. Maybe you should kick that can down the road and wait for another couple of years before going into that. Yes, that, that is exactly our thinking for the moment. 
Interesting. Okay, so you, so the idea is you'll do the monitoring evaluation later on once once you're like trying to grow more. We definitely have a lot of monitoring and evaluation systems in place now and are putting in more frameworks, but they are not of the quality of a large-scale mm-hmm. randomized trial. So that's something we want to do much later, maybe around the three to five-year mark. Right now, it's more about, are you getting the messages? You know, we had more than 8% of our 500 people. We are saying that they probably or definitely wouldn't have taken their kids for immunization if they hadn't got our messages. So that gives us some degree of confidence. So I think it's more about iterations to make a program more effective, but also to get some direct user feedback that's useful at this stage. But to roll out a whole large-scale randomized trial is something we would be looking at at a later date. Yeah. I guess there's a slightly cheap way for you to potentially measure your impact, which is a little bit harder at the testing phase when you're only reaching a small number of people. Because if you're actually growing a lot and you say there's like a thousand villages on your list that you eventually want to reach, but you don't have, you can't reach them all right away, then you can do a before and after comparison where you say, well, we got to this one first and then we looked at what happened, you know, the month after and the month before. And then with the next one, we reached them a month later after and before. Normally this just before and after comparison isn't completely persuasive, isn't super persuasive because there could have been some broader trends, some other thing that, that happened around that same time that might have might have changed vaccination rates that, that wasn't you. But if, if you have enough villages, if you have a large enough sample, then it's very likely that any such broader changes are cancelling out. And you also get this diversification across different time periods where you where you release the program. So simply kind of doing this yeah, before and after comparison, yeah, if you're large enough, could give you a very good measure of your impact. So that's what we're, we're actually looking at now. Are there ways we can get to having higher confidence in our impact without rolling out a large-scale randomized trial? And exactly, is there some kind of before and after methodology or a difference in difference method where we look at a neighboring set of villages which didn't have ambassadors or SMS reminders and, and what does that mean? The challenge is if we are relying on administrative data in a state where it may not be of as high quality as elsewhere. And in addition, we've had COVID over the last year and a half. So at the moment, we're looking into the administrative data to check the quality of it. And the next step is to try and find ways we can get closer to the impact, either through some kind of before and after or difference in difference method. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. What's a, what's another potential roadblock to achieving your, your, your full potential? So I think one challenge we've had so far, and hopefully it's in the past, has been COVID. The first wave and definitely the second wave in India hit fairly hard. We moved all our team to remote fairly soon, and that's part of the reason as well we conducted the remote pilot. With the second wave, we also tried other ways to respond to COVID. We sent out messages to do with proning. We knew there was an identifiable gap around this. I don't know if you know what that is. It's about lying the patient in the front to improve their oxygenation saturation level. And this is something that doesn't require a hospital, and that's something that can be done at home. So that's something we focused designing messages out and sending reminders on. And we did see some percentage of people clicking, and and we did some follow-up surveys to see their overall information and knowledge on this increased. I think... For us, COVID was also, in terms of Fiona and me being on the ground, we still managed to grow our team and communicate with our government partners. But we also realized just in terms of being closer to our end users and Mm. and working closely with the government partners, it's been a challenge over the last year and a half. But again, hopefully we are at the the tail end of that. I think... The final challenge is very much around this this fundraising. As I mentioned, we have about 70% of our funds through venture philanthropy and EA-aligned funders. 
the challenge for us is something I mentioned earlier on this valley of death, you know, finding the right kind of funders who feel sufficiently convinced about our focus. There is also the whole challenge of my time. So at the moment, I spend about 50% of my time looking at fundraising and they're obviously you know, better ways I could be spending time on focusing on M&E and, and program and staff hiring, etc. So I think from that perspective as well, if we were able to raise larger sums of funds that could cover us, then overall our organization could be could be more effective. Yeah. Is, is it likely that COVID is going to present kind of longer term challenges or is it more, it's hopefully a temporary thing for just a few years? And actually, what was the main problem that COVID presented? I guess you had to switch to remote work, but was it that people were unwilling to leave the house to go and get vaccinated? So it wasn't clear what you were asking them to do? There was a short period of time when we had to pause our work because there wasn't clarity if routine immunization should continue. Mm. And at some point, we also had to send a different set of messages because vaccinations were only happening in certain areas and not others. So we wanted to make sure, again, from a do no harm perspective, we weren't sending people out without clarity on where they need to go for what. Broadly, governments have been overwhelmed as well and focused Mm. elsewhere, and they haven't managed to focus as much as they would have liked on routine immunization. But again, that has changed more recently when there has been more clarity that A, routine immunization is overall net positive and needs to continue even during COVID-related lockdowns, and B, that there has been these drop-offs over the last year and a half, and we need to catch up on that. So I guess to reach 10 to 100 times as many parents, you might need something like 10 to 100 times as much funding. Do you think, you know, if we can hire the right people, if we can demonstrate that we're roughly having the effect that we were expecting to, that amount of funding is in theory available from foundations or different places that you can apply? Or could that potentially just, could you eventually reach some limit where you're like, well, we've gotten as much money as we can from all of the funders who are interested in funding this kind of thing and now we're stuck? That's a good question. I don't think I have it worked out. I do think given we can make these advancements in terms of developing an operations manual and finding pathways to scale, our overall cost effectiveness may make it so easy for us to roll out fairly quickly and get governments to buy in and send out these reminders that it would be solvable. I mean, the plan right now is to find a way to solve it, whether it's through ourselves or through the government or, or others. Yeah. I guess, yeah, to reach all these people, you, I suppose, need a team in the thousands, possibly tens of thousands. I guess, conceive, no, I guess probably tens of thousands seems, seems maybe right if you're going to cover all of India. How difficult is hiring as a, as a scaling challenge? So we have been experimenting with different rigorous hiring processes, and they seem to be working well so far. If any listener has applied for any role in our organization, you would know you have an upfront testing process, which allows us to distill large number of applicants to a fairly small, manageable number. We have tried this recently for our tech and business development role, so we would be curious to see where we land. But more on the junior data officers, our colleagues are fairly well networked in the space and we have been fairly successful in hiring at that level. So which would be the biggest hire as we expand? And we don't see that as a major bottleneck. Okay, so I suppose the thing that you need the most of is people to be calling up the villagers, finding the ambassadors, calling them and asking them. And I guess also people collecting numbers and then sending SMSs. And that's something that I guess that can be a reasonably standardized role where potentially it's like it's not so hard to find people who are able to, to do that. Exactly. If we were to go with this call center model, the idea is we have this operations manual built out and we can roll that out fairly rapidly and hire people fairly quickly. And they'll all be of a certain caliber and trained a certain way. Yeah. I guess to get a lot bigger and cover as many states in India as possible, 
I suppose in each one you'll want to go in and try to coordinate with the Department of Health or coordinate with the hospitals to get all of the numbers of the, all of the parents of the newborns because that would be just so much more effective than trying to, I guess, talk doctor by doctor. Are you likely to have any issues getting coordination or collaboration from them or are they, are they just very happy for someone to take these numbers and, and run with it? In India, one can't work without collaboration with the government partners. Mm. So that's a given. It's quite hard, probably impossible to set something up in the charity space without having their buy-in. In terms of different ways to go about it, we have already experimented with a couple of different ways. In both cases, we work closely with the government partners. But in one case, we have people directly going into primary health centers with the assent of the state immunization officer. In the other case, we have managed to get the data directly from the state government through the state family welfare bureau. So there are different pathways. And so far, as long as they see us as credible and supporting their work and their priorities, it's been straightforward. Mm. Having said that, even with this MOU model in Maharashtra, it took several months of back and forth for us to get that MOU signed. So again, going back to that point on replicating to another district versus investing in potential exponential pathways to scale, but lack of clarity on how long that could take, you know, there are different ways to think about it. And obviously that has implications on the cost effectiveness of the model. Yeah. Okay, different topic. Did you consider early on potentially moving to India permanently and just running the entire organization and all of the staff from India? At the moment, most of the team is based in India, and that was always the plan. I am based in London, and the plan is that I go back and forth. One thing we have heard from charity entrepreneurship, and I think it's fairly standard advice by Y Combinator and others, is the role of a co-founder. And I think I was quite lucky early on to find Fiona. And the idea is that she would very soon be moving to India, be based there. So most of our team will be based there with me going back and forth as and when needed. Yeah. Yeah. Is there actually, is there a benefit to having you in London? Because I guess potentially for fundraising, it might be better, or there's other people you, you want to coordinate with, where it's perhaps easier to do it in Europe. Is there benefit for me being in London? Yes and no. Yes, from the perspective of potentially linking to funders in this part of the world and maybe also in the US. It's more a personal decision because I'm on a certain trajectory and I already was before I came into this. It's yeah. much harder for me to move. If I didn't have those restrictions, I mean, I have a family here and if I could convince all of them, I would probably move to, move to India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, you've put, you put down some roots in London, so you can't just uproot them all. Yeah, I'm guessing you might have some family in India or perhaps have spent some time in India before you started this organization? Yes, I have family in India and I, I was born and I grew up there. All right, yeah. Was that a substantial advantage as a co-founder? Do you think maybe would Fiona have found it more difficult without someone who was more familiar with operating in India? Possibly. Yeah. So India is, of course, a big country and my middle class experience may not be the same as people in other regions and, and different income levels. But having said that, because I grew up there, I'd like to think I can tap into my personal and professional networks. Maybe I also understand some of the local context and politics better. And I'd like to think I can also relate better to my team and the end users in different ways. I'm also a mother, which maybe gives me a personal understanding of the challenges that parents face and thought processes they may use to make decisions. I think something I mentioned earlier, being aware of one's strengths and limitations and actively seeking a co-founder to complement them could be valuable for any startup. So Fiona, she's 
much younger and she's closer to our team's median age, I think. Mm. And she manages our team on the ground. So I think the fact that we bring complementary skills and experience allows us to run the organization in a way that we may not be able to do by ourselves. For instance, one of our values is around think and act. And I find it so interesting how, you know, Fiona's standard is always let's sleep over it. And I tend to kind of jump the hoops and reach a decision sooner. Mm. And so we somehow seem to land in a better place, we think, in terms of decision making as a result of some of that differences in how we approach some of these big decisions, especially. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, both having the desire to mull things over and the desire to to make a decision and move on is or is, is it very useful to have both of those tendencies competing, I guess, when you're trying to manage something. I've, I've been told that it can be useful having me in a meeting because I always want to end meetings and just make decisions and end them. And obviously, that would be terrible if it, if it was the only way that you're doing things. But it's like you want to have a flavor of different different dispositions towards that kind of thing. Has anyone been kind of annoyed by what you're doing and made your life difficult over the last couple of years? I think our goal is pretty universally supported by everyone, which helps to make our work far more tractable and we're not pushing against an opposing force. In fact, if anything, over the last year and a half, I think there's been an increased understanding of routine immunization Mm. within government and also some of our peers and networks. And there is an overall support and appetite for the work we are doing. There may be some other lines of entrepreneurship like tobacco or alcohol regulation where there may be more organized opposition, which may reduce your odds for success. So far, we haven't encountered that. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think who yeah, who, who might be annoyed. I suppose anti-vaxxers perhaps, but maybe they're operating more in other countries. But what about, has anyone been annoyed that you're kind of spamming them with these with these messages or perhaps the immunization ambassadors annoyed someone by, by hassling them, them too much? Or is, I guess it just hasn't been an issue so far. We take consent quite seriously, and India is also currently planning to pass laws similar to the EU GDPR laws. Mm. We do have an opt-out process at the start of our text messages. Very few parents have chosen to opt out, I think around 0.1%. I think parents overwhelmingly say the messages are useful in our surveys. Amongst those who remembered receiving the message, more than 99% said they found it useful and wanted Mm. to continue. So, so far, we haven't seen... extreme backlash on spamming. Okay, that's great. I guess we've talked about the possibility of this being done by government or possibly even absorbed by government at some point in the future. What about kind of going the opposite way? I was imagining an alternative model for trying to get vaccines to everyone might be that the Indian government starts paying a bounty effectively for anyone who's able to immunize a child who otherwise would have gone unimmunized. And so you could imagine... I guess, semi trying to privatize this by just making it the case that any company in India could potentially try to make a profit by using their marketing ability or their logistics ability to immunize as many people as possible and then then go to the government and and get paid for it. Does that sound like a crazy idea that only an economist like me would come up with? Or or might there be an actual useful nugget in there? What you're describing seems like something we call an impact bond. Mm. It's social impact bond and development space is called a development impact bond. So no, it's a great idea. And there have been some innovations around this. The challenge is getting the government to pay for it. So Mm. in the impact bond model, you would have an investor who puts in the money and then you would have the government or some philanthropist who would be paying the investor the returns if we meet certain milestones. 
it is something we may want to explore ourselves, even from a philanthropic perspective. If a philanthropist were to say, right, I would pay you a certain amount, but the next tranche would only be released if you meet certain milestones around mm. number of people reached, etc. So it's absolutely plausible. The challenge is, in the past with impact bonds, is getting governments to fund or mm. getting the, the grantor bit is usually the challenge. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess I, I thought of that because I was like, this seems like a sales issue. It's like, who's really good at marketing? Who like annoys me all the time trying to get me to use their services? It's like businesses are the experts in that potentially. Although I guess, of course, you could hire people who have marketing expertise to try to figure out, you know, what should the SMS messages be? Maybe it's a, it's a slightly odd fit for the immunization ambassador one that perhaps is better as a nonprofit. Yeah, I think the big question is who is paying them or yeah. any company and that's where it comes to knots. We have been, and especially me, when I think about my time in fundraising, I am quite keen to see, are there any ways we could make this revenue generating? Mm. Sadly, the kind of people we want to reach are not the income paying community. And, and there's no way we could, we could you know, figure out a finance model there. So yeah, Impact Bond is the only one I have actually come up with as well, where at least there is some clear incentives tied to certain milestones and some funding attached to it. But beyond that, yes, it's, it seems very clearly in the charity nonprofit space. All right, let's go a bit back into the history and talk about charity entrepreneurship, because I think potentially quite a lot of listeners who are thinking about how they might be able to have more impact by, by changing what they're doing could be interested in potentially going through this program. Yeah, so it describes itself as an effective altruist organization that helps start multiple high-impact charities each year based on extensive research. Our mission is to cause more effective charities to exist by connecting talented individuals with high-impact ideas. So yeah, some of the things I've started other than Savita are people who are working on policy change to improve the welfare of fish in aquaculture, people who are going and working on policy around cigarettes in developing countries, uh, and also groups that are trying to encourage reductions in lead exposure, I think in particular in, in developing countries again. So what sort of services did you get by going through this program? Because I suppose, well, both actually you and Charity Entrepreneurship were like very much in the kind of its the early stages back in 2019. Yes, I was part of their first cohort. I think they just had their third cohort go through this summer. Each year, I think they have hundreds of research hours that they go through to identify these promising interventions, which is how they came up with conditional cash transfers as a starting point for us. So as part of this program, they provide these two months of free training to selected entrepreneurs, and you go through quite a rigorous process to, to get selected. And in addition to that, once you are through, they also offer some free legal training, a workspace. And I think the biggest thing for me was connection to funders, peers, and advisors who continue to motivate you and ensure that you, you remain focused. Yeah, what did you find most useful about the about the program? I suppose it was charity entrepreneurship that kind of shortlisted this intervention. Is is that right? Yes. So the starting point was charity entrepreneurship had looked into several interventions and within global health space, the intervention they had looked into was conditional cash transfers. And I think some of this research they had already done in the past when they had looked into setting up charity science health, which was focused on SMS reminders mm. for routine immunization. So that's where we came in saying, right, you know, SMS reminders or conditional cash transfers for routine immunization. Is there something else that could beat that? What they required from us was full-time commitment. They had lectures, activities, and presentations by others in the EA development space. So in my cohort, some of the organizations you mentioned, we had 
Happier Lives Institute that was focused mm. on mental health. Yeah. We had colleagues who then went on to start Fish Welfare Initiative, Animal Ask and Animal Advocacy Careers. As part of this, going through this incubation, we also interacted closely with colleagues at Fortify Health and Charity Science Health. And I think the CE support was catalytic. I wouldn't have founded this charity in their absence. And something I mentioned earlier, the support of funders, advisors, and peers was quite instrumental in continuing to motivate us and keep us focused. I understand CE has incubated 18 new charities and I think they've already fundraised $3.5 million. So they mm. seem to be doing something right so far. Yeah, yeah. Did they help with fundraising in the in the early stages? Or did you get a grant if you go through the program? Exactly. So in addition to this training and the network of mentors and advisors, one additional thing, which I know is quite promising and useful for a lot of people considering this option, is they provide seed grants for up to $100,000. And I think... In our program, there was some clear amount that was dedicated to all the charities that were founded. Moving on, I think the last couple of years, A, it has moved to an online version, which I think they may be continuing. But also the amount may not be available for all entrepreneurs. I think there is some degree of competition, maybe at the end where they have to send in their proposals based on which certain ones are selected. But broadly, they do have a pot of funding that does go out to the most promising promising charities. Yeah. To what extent are they helping by legitimizing the decision to quit the other things that you're doing? I imagine there's plenty of people who you know could imagine going and starting something new, but then perhaps it feels very risky to do it or they don't quite feel like they have the confidence to strike out on their own. And maybe having people you know select you from a competition or a competitive pool of applicants saying, yeah, you should absolutely do this and we're going to help you do it, like gets people over the line. Possibly. I think the way I would see it is You're right. There is an element of legitimizing the process. I think they also kind of carry you through the whole process, which you otherwise wouldn't take on. So I think two of the key bottlenecks that they are, I think, responding to, one is there are a lot of outstanding intervention ideas that aren't being implemented. Mm -hmm. And the other is founders starting out without a support network. Mm -hmm. And creating avenues to respond to both of that allows, I think, a lot of potential entrepreneurs to take that first risky step. I think also very soon they plan to have a quiz on their website, which allows you to then make a call on whether this is a good fit for you before you apply. But broadly, anybody who is interested, I would say just just go and apply and just going through the process may help you come closer to the decision. I think the other bit that I have observed is that Even after going through the process, there may be different pathways one could take. I have seen people start charities as a part-time founder. Somebody has started a foundation to find other impactful charities. Mm. I know people who have gone through the program who have then been absorbed by other impactful charities that Mm. they've gone on to be employed by other organizations. So I think even once you've gone through the process, you may have several avenues to explore. Yeah, nice. Have you stayed in touch with the other founders who who went through the through the program? Yes, and that's I think being a big part of the plus feeling that you're not alone and doing this all by yourself, which mm. can be quite common within entrepreneurs. 
And they offer not just mentors that I regularly talk to, such as Patrick, who's director of their communications, but we also have these you know, Slack channels where we discuss operational challenges and other areas. For instance, registration in the UK, which is a standard challenge for several nonprofits. So they have found an organization to provide legal advice pro bono for all of us. So there is some economy of scale in operation, which, which helps all of us by being in touch and by continuing to be in touch with CE. Yeah. Yeah. For listeners who are thinking they might want to apply, do you know what kind of selection criteria they're using to, to, to decide who to admit to the program? I would say if you were to take the quiz and you were already inclined to consider this as an option, you should just go ahead and apply. So as I understand it, Charity Entrepreneurship had started this previous thing, Charity Science Health, a couple of years earlier that was already doing the SMS message reminder thing. And then you kind of merged with them. What's the story there? So while going through the charity incubation process, we got close to Charity Science Health, which was focused on SMS reminders to improve uptake of routine immunization in India. And while we were following this evidence base for immunization uptake, I think both of our organizations independently concluded that a combination of SMS reminders and Mm. ambassadors was the most cost effective and impactful. So as a result, it seemed fairly logical for us thinking of scaling up to join forces so we could build on the infrastructure CSH already had, including some of these government partnerships, and we could also jumpstart the ambassador program. I think while we were considering the promisingness of the program, in addition to the evidence and the outstanding cost effectiveness from the tractability perspective, the authors had just won the Nobel Prize, which mm. you know made it all quite exciting. So I think we decided that it made most rational sense for us to merge as an organization and Kat and Eric, who were leading the organization at that time, are still very involved and are advising us. And they have moved on to other impactful things. Kat's now with the World Bank and Eric is working with Michael Kremer Mm -hmm. at the University of Chicago. So maybe another data point for people considering the entrepreneurship track that one could then move on to other impactful areas. And there seems to be an openness I guess it's all seen as positive having been an entrepreneur in the past. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So you found your co-founder Fiona through this program. How essential do you think it is to have a co-founder if you're starting a project like this? To me, intuitively, I imagined doing something like this on my own and I'm just like, that would never work because I would would get demoralized and then there'll be no one to kind of pick me up when I was feeling down or that we were facing challenges. Yeah, do, do you have the same sense? Yeah, I think for me, given where I was with my life trajectory and knowing I couldn't possibly move to India, it made so much sense to have a co-founder who could actually be based in India. But even beyond that, the advice we got from CE and others is that having a co-founder is immensely useful in complementing some of the strengths and weaknesses and limitations you may have. And from that perspective, it's definitely been hugely useful to have someone who is just distressed about <laughs> about carrying through with your day's work. And, and yeah, just in terms of entrepreneurship being a lonely journey, having mm. somebody whom you can constantly throw ideas back and forth and debate on how to take some of our decisions forward is, is immensely useful. Yeah. It's interesting that you've done this co-founder split where Fiona's doing most of the management and I guess you're on fundraising and strategy and planning and that kind of thing. Yeah, it was broadly from this idea that she would be based in India and most of our team would be based there. So it would be easier for her to take on that role. 
And it's worked out mostly fine. So I think we would be continuing with that model. It would be much harder for me sitting here to be managing a team on the ground. There is also this element of people being mostly in charge of their own selves. So the management is fairly light touch and more in terms of how can we support you to do your work better. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose the relationship between co-founders is so incredibly important for an organization's success. Do you and Fiona like spend time socially together to like ensure that any any potential frictions kind of get smoothed over? Yes, before our first trip to India, we spent quite a lot of time together. But even otherwise, we are on call and chat pretty much all the time, which is, again, I think just the nature of startup in early stage and lots of moving pits and pieces. I think we pretty much clicked fairly early and continue to be clicked. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think we bring very different perspectives and skills and somehow are complementary and seem to agree on most things. And where we disagree, we manage to work through in a fairly nonviolent way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, did you do a lot of screening to figure out whether you were a good match before you started the project? Or was it kind of, well, we'll try getting the project going and that will test the relationship? I think CE has gotten pretty good at this. So they did some kind of, I think they even put us in some cat and dog category. They never told us which one of us was a cat or a dog. But I think <laughs> they did a lot of behind the scene calculations, I guess, based on several exercises we did with different mm. people within the incubation. So I think there was some of just trusting their judgment. But also, I think it is such a fundamentally important decision to get right that it's okay to, I guess, try out early on and see if it works or not, like yeah. with a lot of these decisions. And if not being, I guess, brave find to, something else. Yeah, to yeah. walk away. Yeah. Are there any ideas that charity entrepreneurship has kind of shortlisted as promising interventions that people should scale up that you're particularly excited by that you'd like to see listeners maybe maybe jump on? So I know for next year, CE plans to focus on international policy as a priority cost area. And I know they plan to incubate a total of five charities that are significantly more cost effective than EA recommended direct delivery interventions. So I let them I guess, focus on the policy interventions. The one area I'm keen to see grow is this effective giving movement in India that has been led and supported by the life you can save and others. I get approached fairly regularly by university students and others in India interested in learning more about starting effective charities in India, but also on effective giving. And my understanding of the key bottleneck there is that most Indians are most interested in giving to charities in India. And there isn't a clear, credible list of potential charities that are highly evidence-based, cost-effective in India. There has been some attempt in the past to figure out which of the top GiveWell charities are also functioning in India. But the challenge has been that once you donate funds to them, they go into a central pool. So it's hard to ring fence the amount that's going directly to impact lives in India. So I'm quite keen to make a call out there for some kind of individual or institution to take on that role of exploring evidence-based, highly cost-effective charities that could make the cut for, for effective giving in India. Yeah. 
Do you have a view on this question of like how broad the program should be that a that charity should run? So to explain what I mean, I guess one vision for Savita might be that it's really good at delivering the SMS and the ambassadors, and then it should expand into all kinds of other health interventions in order to like have more impact because and, and use the, the expertise that it's developed. An alternative might be no, Savita should specialize in this one thing and absolutely kill it and just get as big as it can with that, rather than diluting itself into other areas where maybe it's not going to be not going to be quite strong. And if someone wants to deliver a different intervention they should start a new organization that just just nails that other thing. Yeah, do you have a, have a view on that? That is a great question. We haven't figured out the answer yet. What we have agreed on, Fiona and I, is our focus is on this problem of under immunization. And that's what we want to resolve first before mm. we move on to other things. Having said that, there have been, maybe we can call them distractions throughout the process from funders or otherwise. For instance, in India, we had a foundation that was interested in using our SMS reminders for students in schools on a whole host of behaviors around taking their folic acid or being clean, et cetera. And we went some way in there before realizing, okay, this was distracting and probably taking us away from our core focus. Another example, which is probably more, I guess, salient is around COVID vaccines. Can our nudges, especially around ambassadors, be useful for getting more people to take their COVID vaccine? And this was something that came up in some earlier discussions with our colleagues at JPAL, and they have been looking further into it. We have also been following the research in India on the different reasons for hesitancy. We are aware it's very different from routine immunization in terms of drop-offs. A, we are talking about adults B, it may not be high trust area. And C, there may be other challenges around cost, which, you know, with routine immunization, it's provided free of cost. Whereas for COVID vaccine, there may be a cost element. So all of that makes us fairly hesitant to enter that area, but it's not something we have completely ruled out. And that's also an area where CE has been quite helpful and useful, having mentors and advisors who keep kind of nudging us back on track so we don't get distracted by all these other huge problems where we could potentially make a dent on, but would take us away from our core focus. Having said that, this whole immunization ambassador model and this idea of systematically identifying community nodes is really promising and exciting and possibly has other low-hanging fruits that it could have an impact on. We are keen to explore that at some later date, hopefully not too far out. Yes, speculating. What what else might the ambassadors be useful for spreading? I guess the first one that jumped into my head was getting people to quit smoking. But I suppose that's that's maybe a much heavier lift. No, okay, you're shaking your head. Yeah, there any maybe other cash transfers. There has been some mm. research, but I don't think ambassadors would be sufficient. Yeah, the ones we have looked into in the past and maybe promising because we reach pregnant women already with SMS reminders would be around taking folic acid or making sure they understand when there is any kind of complications on home to reach, making sure they focus on institutional delivery. So breastfeeding, tetanus, texoid injections for the pregnant women, even before the child is born. So I think those are the most, I guess, low-hanging fruits. Maybe there's something around vitamin A supplements as well. But beyond that, we haven't actually looked into the range of possibilities that could exist. I think it's also useful to note, uh, this is an open question for us with the JPAL paper on how the ambassadors work versus SMS reminders. It's something we still need to investigate further. So 
we think SMS reminders are increasing salience. It's something you already think is a good thing and this is, it serves as a reminder. Whereas with ambassadors, there is a likelihood they're actually changing norms and mm-hmm. trust in, in the community. So, which is why beyond the 7 million kids in the country, we do think maybe there is a way even those other 3 million kids who are either just getting birth doors or not even being born in primary health centers, if there was a way the norm in the community were to change and immunization was seen as a cool thing to do, they would come in for completing their routine immunization as well. Do you know what was done in countries like, you know, the UK or the US to to get really high levels of childhood immunization in, in the past? Well, I know as a mum, I got a red book yeah. when I when I delivered at the NHS, and that meant I got text messages and constant reminders on when to get vaccines. And again, I do know that served a huge purpose when you feel so overwhelmed and run by a bus. Yeah, it, it does help to keep you on track. So it's actually not so different this intervention than what what the UK is already doing, for example. Exactly. Yeah. It's just that when you think about low income parents and carers, it, there is a whole host of additional ways your life. Life is complicated and overwhelming that just makes it harder to remember to go get those vaccines. All right, we'll stick up a link to the uh, charity entrepreneurship website where I guess you can find out about the, the process for applying and take a look through all of these really interesting white papers that they've written where they look at different interventions where no one's particularly trying to scale that, that intervention at the moment and evaluate them on a whole bunch of different criteria, like how practical is it, how cost effective might it be. Yeah, I think it seems like a, seems like a really uh, cool program. And I've enjoyed looking at some of the other organizations that have gone through charity entrepreneurship as part of prepping for this interview. It's, it's pretty inspiring to see people out there doing things on the ground and not just really podcasts. Um, let's talk maybe for a minute about yeah current opportunities to work at Civita. For people who might like to get involved, what roles are you currently trying to trying to fill? We had a business development role that I think just closed this week. The one role that's still open until Monday is head of technology. In the future, we plan to have some monitoring and evaluation roles open up. I would say broadly because we are a startup and move fairly quickly. If you're interested in this line of work, please take a look at our website and sign up for our newsletter. Yeah. Did the jobs mean moving to India or is there going to be a London office consistently as well? I am quite keen to move as much of our team to India as possible, given there is a surplus of talent in there. Even within this space of evidence-based, cost-effective decision-making and nonprofit sector, there are fairly well-developed organizations there and potential staff members. So I think the business development person, for instance, may be based anywhere, but for most of our operational team moving forward, the likelihood is they'd be based in India. Yeah. Are there any particular skills that are most limiting your ability to grow, like you know, technology or management expertise or you know, familiarity with logistics and so on? I think based on CE's advice and even otherwise, we realized operations was one of our crucial roles. And I know that's something EA and CEA have been promoting as well. So I think that's something we have mostly figured out, I'd like to think. So we have a head of operations now. At the moment, we do think there are some exponential leaps we could have with a head of tech, which is why we are going for this role. I can tell you more about the, the tech role. So. So as we move from this pilot to replication and scale-up phase, we want to find ways to leverage technology optimally and expand our reach and effectiveness. And to do that, we think a head of technology can be quite useful. 
So the main aims of this role is to identify priority opportunities and bottlenecks, to design solutions, both by talking to us team members, but also possibly talking to the end users that we're trying to reach. Also possibly liaise with external tech providers and tech-focused funders as needed. And finally, there is the whole data security and broader regulatory standards and norms around transparency. And we need someone on the ball who can ensure we are meeting those requirements. What we think we need from this person is that, A, absolutely, you are motivated by the satisfaction of building something great and are passionate about this opportunity to see these solutions immediately have an impact. The bit about years of experience, we think is not that essential. I think experience in the design and implementation of software solutions is key. You may have done it in a large organization or not, but we do think if you have built something in a startup environment or have single-handedly completed some impressive side project, or you have some project lead experience in a software team, all of that could be quite useful and relevant for our role. Yeah. To what extent is it useful to have a background in global health and development versus just having, you know, really developed some particular strong skill in in whatever area? Yeah, I think it quite often depends on the role. I think for some of these technical roles, you'll obviously need those particular hard skills, whether it's on technology, on M&E. But for some of these other ones, like this business development role we are hiring, the key skill is someone who can do scientific writing. So just someone who is sharp and can get on with it and and is basically not somebody with strong technical skills in any area or or development and health background. I think for some of these roles, like M&E, that we may be hiring, there would be a requirement that they do have a development background and experience because it just makes it so much easier to understand the context on the ground And if they already have run a randomized trial or they understand how some of this works, that's super useful. I think one big thing for us is we work quite hard to be evidence-based in our hiring systems. It's still a process we're trying to learn from. We try to minimize our implicit bias and focus carefully on candidate skill and fit for specific roles. So for instance, focusing on our test task outcomes rather than too much evidence on, on years of experience it's still a work in progress and and, and we need to see where we land with some of this. Yeah, hiring is difficult. What fraction of your total work hours go towards hiring? I would say more than we would like at the moment, but the way we also justify it is one, we are learning so much from this process because it's all a lot of experimentation for us. So this idea of, especially with India, to go for large quantities and then figure out a way to have questions up front to funnel that, I think seems to be working out. It's also, even though we try to do some kind of persona mapping up front, we realize when we go through this interview process, we ourselves change our minds on what we prioritize and how much and how much weightage to give it. So I think we are investing more time than we would like because we see this as a learning process and an experimentation, but because we are also carefully codifying some of our reflections and lessons, hopefully the next iteration will be much faster. Yeah, I 
I wonder, maybe it's not so bad if you're spending a huge amount of time on hiring. I, at least I've heard stories that, you know, many very successful organizations early on, an astonishing fraction of staff time was spent on getting exactly the right hires and figuring out exactly what roles you actually need to hire for. I, it makes some intuitive sense because the cost of a bad hire could be pretty famously quite large and, and the benefits of getting exactly the right person into exactly the right role can be huge in terms of then unlocking this potential to, to grow more. So maybe it's not like you could spend half of your time on hiring and actually that's getting you a lot of leverage maybe. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, someone told me a story recently that in the early days of Google, the senior staff were spending 40% of their time on, on hiring, which I think they also thought was extremely high, but then I guess it seemed, seemed to work out for Google. So. <laughs> so do you need people who have experience in India, perhaps working with health authorities in order to build and develop those relationships with health departments who seem really essential potentially to, to scaling up at least the SMS part of things? Yeah, for both programs, and in fact, for any nonprofit in India, one needs to have close relationships with the government. In our case, we recently hired program managers, one for Maharashtra and one for Bihar. And one of their primary roles is maintaining that relationship with the government and also looking out for additional opportunities where we could support them, which helps us in the longer run, but also finding additional avenues where we can grow our immunization programs faster. Yeah, yeah. And I guess for those who can't see themselves moving to India or working for Savita, but are owning to give and want to fund this sort of thing, there's a whole bunch of information on your website. You link off to the to the JPAR papers and yes. you've got your literature review up there. And I, I think there might also be a review of the evidence on this topic on the Charity Entrepreneurship website if people are interested to learn about the intervention. I would also encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. We hope to send out fairly soon. We are also planning to publish our pilot results and a few additional research papers that we've been working on. Nice. It sounds like you've dealt with a bunch of different funders as you're trying to get this off the ground and and then scale it. Do you have any advice for funders on how they could approach projects like this better or how they might be able to improve their thinking in order to, to have more impact? I think having a clear sense of your own values and also your risk tolerance would help you make a decision on whether Suvita broadly fits in that category. At the moment, we do think we could be somewhere in the top GiveWell charity range. We are funded by individual EA funders, as well as Founders Pledge, which has done its own cost effectiveness analysis. And I believe they think we are about four times give directly in terms of cost effectiveness range. Okay, let's push on and talk about things that you've potentially learned about management and founder careers more generally, maybe over the last two years or over the whole of your career. I guess, which past experience or training before you started Savita do you think was most valuable in preparing you to be able to to actually do what you're doing now? So I had most experience on applied research at the World Bank and then the Soros Foundation, that's the NRGI. It was more recently at Options, which is a subsidiary of Mary Stopes International, that I was doing much more work on operations. So looking at hiring, where is our money going, what are our margins? And I found all of that around managing large programs and budgets and hiring staff quite useful and very relevant to a lot of the work I'm doing now. I mentioned earlier, I know 80,000 Hours and the Center for Effective Altruism have been quite focused on the role of operations and organizations. And I think CE also recommends ops as one of the first hires. And I completely agree with that. And I think there's a lot of learning there. 
I think I was asking my co-founder this question earlier. I think my knowledge of the development space and the key players involved has been quite useful for us to navigate our conversations. And I think what I hear from her is that I'm able to get the big picture fairly quickly and get a clearer understanding of how we could fit in with other peer organizations or even with the government and what their expectations could be. And I think some of that comes from the experience of having worked in that space. Yeah. It's, operations is a pretty huge class of uh, activity. Are there any particular subparts of operations that feel particularly important to have expertise in or, or hire people into early? So I think for Suvita and probably the same for a lot of nonprofits, the kind of operations role we've been looking into it can take on a lot of bandwidth that can otherwise be spent on other areas such as programming and hiring itself. So for us, operations has been a lot to do around administration registering in the UK, for instance. It's not a one-off process. There's a, a fair degree of back and forth with our legal advisors and getting it to that point. Also developing some of those systems around safeguards and hiring and and a lot of it around right now we are working through the US and UK and India. So just in terms of transferring money and what does that mean in terms of exchange rates and, and how do we make sure we are within laws while we do some of this? It's something I just want it to go away and not deal with. And having somebody who is on the ball with that is hugely valuable. Yeah. Yeah, is there anything in particular you look for in a in a hire for a head of operations role? We again went through a fairly rigorous process in terms of test tasks to ensure they had that attention to detail and could also do some kind of whiteboard thinking. I think my one broad lesson coming out from our hire so far is that someone who's worked in a startup environment and kind of that white space is able to take some of this on fairly quickly and run with it in a way that somebody who has been embedded in larger institutions or in a single kind of culture finds harder, whether it's a question of, you know, quick pivots or or just being able to produce the first draft of something on how to take forward is just something they have done before and they're able to wrap their head around faster. Yeah, I guess the, the challenge for a head of operations with a new organization is that there's no manual, there's no procedure for doing lots of things. They just have to be willing to like dive in and grapple with an accounting system that doesn't exist yet and, and like make it exist. Yeah, Yeah, and also just ideas around risk, right? Because there is that, I mean, again, having worked with larger institutions, there is that perfect accounting system one could have So it's more a question of what is that MVP, that minimum allowable product, which we can use to get to the next level and then possibly design more efficient and and robust systems, but may not want to start out with the perfect product from day one. Yeah. What do you think made you willing to quit a quite normal, secure, sensible development job in order to go and start this organization when so many other people are not willing to, to take that kind of step? I think a lot of this has to do with real or perceived safety nets in my case, because I have done some of these things that people may have a vague list in their heads on makes it easier. So for instance, having a family or wanting to travel or make money, I think those are all sensible aspirations. And it's harder to decide not to pursue any of those in favor of something like entrepreneurship, in which case you may need to make certain sacrifices. So I think for me, it was just easier because I had checked some of those boxes Mm -hmm. and maybe had some ideas around how much I value them and what I was willing to let go. 
Yeah. So potentially you'd save money. You've been working for a while and quite a lot of like serious jobs. And I guess perhaps you'd save, save some money and felt a bit more like financially secure to jump off and do something, something different that may or may not pan out. Yes, that's true. And also I have a partner who continues to make money. Mm, yeah. And I think maybe there is something there in terms of yeah, choosing partners who may be broadly value aligned that mm. does help in making decisions such as this. Yeah, yeah. This feels like a slightly odd thing to dwell on, but I think it is super important because for people who want to go into entrepreneurship or just in general, their plan for impact involves taking risk later in their career. We often suggest it's like quite valuable to save money because that just might be the thing that prevents you from doing it later on if you don't feel like you have a reasonable uh, like financial safety net. And I guess with, with partners as well, it makes sense potentially for one partner in a, in a relationship to have a more risky career and the other one to have a more solid career. And you can get a joint optimization perhaps between you that allows you to like both have a good personal life and prudential considerations as well as as well as have more impact. Yes, and ensure there is buy-in into each other's careers because mm. in my case there is also, you know, me just dropping balls and going off to India and I need to make sure my partner steps in with childcare. So it's not just financial, he has to buy into this model in yeah. more ways than one for us yeah. to make it work. Yeah, so he's he's supportive of having impact with your career, that's an important priority for him as well. So far, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool. What's been most difficult about founding Savita that people might possibly not suspect? Well, this is fairly boring, I guess, but five months in having to face COVID, uh, which was quite world altering, was quite huge in more ways than one. One was, of course, like I mentioned, on government relations and staff motivation, but also we had plans to raise more funds in India and mm. us not being physically there didn't allow me to build on some of those networks and the economy the way it is i'm not really sure it's it's an area we would be prioritizing anytime soon yeah what was your approach i think some organizations they froze their projects kind of and tried to save money and they were like we'll call you staff when we're ready to kick things up again did you consider doing that or indeed possibly do that we definitely considered all alternatives because we managed to pivot to a remote version in response to COVID and we managed to hire teams on the ground, we had certain colleagues already who we could trust to then hire additional team members. We were able to progress despite the COVID-related lockdowns. I think the bigger one was just motivation of our team members and for us to ensure we did you know, weekly, some version of hanging out in the pub with, with all our team members to, to ensure we all continued to be motivated and focused. Yeah. Okay. So it was people being, it's potentially hard to motivate a workforce that's used to working together, just, just stuff at home, or you have to like start thinking a lot about people's mental health and how are they doing? Yeah. And in India, the, the COVID phase was quite bad. So it was not just about working from home. Pretty much everyone was also personally affected with their family members. Mm. So it was quite hard for extended periods of time to be stuck in your room or, or your or your home to continue being motivated and then get these negative messages about your friends and families and networks. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything you did to help maintain your mental health during COVID? So I think as a team, we had this Jai Pakoda Zoom event every Friday or every second Friday. And that was quite useful for a lot of us to not talk work and to be able to talk to each other. I think more generally for me personally, just I guess meditation exercise, all the use, all the, the common ones the definitely things. helped with yeah. sanity. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, are there any instructive mistakes that you've made at some point in your in your career that you'd be open to open to sharing? I think 
Thankfully, not any major ones yet, but the one we do recognize as a distraction is the mission drift, which was quite real with these potential COVID vaccine. We had a lot of interest from funders to see how we could respond to that, for instance. And again, having colleagues within CE and otherwise nudging us to continue remaining focused has been hugely helpful. I think that's the biggest one for us so far in terms of potential mistakes or almost mistakes that have been distracting us from our core focus. Yeah, in thinking about whether to do more COVID work, I suppose one issue is you specialized in doing this other thing, which is getting kids vaccinated and maybe your programs work work better for that. There's also just the issue that COVID is quite deadly, but so are, so are all of these other diseases that you're trying to get kids vaccinated for so they, they don't die. And it, like doing the thing that's most topical, like getting people vaccinated for COVID might just seem straightforwardly worse on a cost effectiveness point of view than trying to get more children vaccinated against with like even more effective vaccines against even more deadly illnesses. Yeah. So we know, for instance, measles is six times as infectious as COVID. And there have been real challenges with potential outbreaks of measles. So I think once we had more data coming in on how COVID was then having an impact on routine immunization and also lack of clarity on how our programs could be most impactful on COVID, made it easier for us to refocus on routine immunization. Having said that, it's still an ongoing question for us on whether there are some low-hanging fruits areas we could impact in terms of COVID response. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any general life advice that you think is underrated? I think one experiment I have done over the last few years, which has served me well, is around putting myself in uncomfortable situations. It's Mm. almost like building a muscle. I think there's a whole classic book on this, which is called feel the fear and do it anyway. And especially, I think, as an entrepreneur, you get thrown in uncomfortable situations quite a lot. And I think consciously and deliberately choosing to do that in your daily life, whatever that is, I know buying something expensive you otherwise absolutely wouldn't or talking loudly somewhere where you wouldn't. It just, I think, in a way helps you increase your comfort zone and helps you face some of those uncomfortable situations better. Yeah, I guess, well, talking more loudly in a public space isn't super important in itself. But I guess the idea is you're training this general ability when it does actually matter at some point to be able to violate convention or do something that you haven't done before. Yeah. Another one my colleagues talk about is the idea of collecting failures, which I, again, think is super useful for entrepreneurs to think about. I know in fundraising, it's almost a stats, right? You have 90% negative responses for every 10% positive. So it's almost, again, deliberately aiming to go get those negatives so you can increase the odds for some of the positives. Yeah. Collect them in in what way? Oh, I see. Oh, the idea is you should consider it a success every time you're rejected for a job or a grant or something because that makes it more motivating to do it. Or consider it a failure, but celebrate it anyway. So go out there and collect some of them. Maybe it doesn't have to be, you know, huge failures, but just on a daily basis, you know, you may be afraid to go talk to someone, but just do it because it's another failure in your part. Yeah, that's super interesting. There's some people on Twitter who I think they publish like every time they get rejected for a paper Mm. from a journal or every time they get turned down for a job and things like that. 
it's this funny sort of, what do you call it, temptation bundling, or maybe it's not quite temptation bundling, but I think it's unpleasant to be rejected for a paper or for a job or a grant or whatever else. But then if you can make content out of it, where like where you get to share your misery with the public and people get to talk about how, well, of course, everyone has been turned down for so many things before. It's It somehow makes it, I think, perhaps more enjoyable and motivating for, for folks because they get to <laughs> yeah, share their frustration. Yeah, I think at some point it almost became a meme, right? There was some yeah. Princeton professor who yeah. posted something on all his failures and I think, yeah, it, it took it to a different level. But I think fundamentally there is something there we could yeah. all aspire to do more of, fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's the it's the challenge with all sorts of discussion about how to be more successful or all lifestyle advice is that you only get this top 10% of like things that people think that they work, things that they're willing to share, which is not <laughs> most, most of our lives. We like prefer to keep it private rather than, rather than sharing it on social media or, or uh, putting it in a podcast, which can very much bias kind of what kinds of things you hear. True. Yeah, I think that, so obviously most people's CVs are like all of the papers they did publish, all of the jobs they did get. And they went through and put in, <laughs> into their CV every single time that they were rejected for anything, which made it, made it incredibly long, but entertaining and, and I think relatable. What does your day look like? Is there any way of summing up, like broadly speaking, how much time you spend on different kinds of founder like functions? So every Monday, Fiona and I try and have a conversation on are we hitting our broad OKRs, objectives and key results for the next three months? What is our plan for the week? And so a lot of, I guess, reflection, but also long term thinking of are we on track? On a more day-to-day basis, we also have Wednesdays, we try and be good at not having any calls and doing more deep work and reflection and working on our papers. The rest of the time, I would say, is fairly chaotic, though I try and bring some semblance to it, especially because a lot of my work is outward phasing and trying to reach funders or or talk Mm. to peers and potential partners or maintain government relations. So there is an element of time not completely being in my control. I think the one good thing is because we work in India and the day starts early and I'm an early riser. So Mm. it's, it's also early on, once the kids are out of home, I can get a lot of my work done in the first few hours. And then some of the calls and work that doesn't require any kind of deep attention, I can focus in the afternoon and in the evenings. Yeah. Yeah, we've had this interesting experience. Uh, Kieran, who's listening to this at the moment, uh, we used to be in a time zone five hours earlier than me, which meant that because he's he's an early morning person and I'm a night person, we would basically be in sync with our with our working hours. And uh, mm. recently, he's been in the same time zone. This has created issues that at the start of the day, I'm not around. At the end of the day, he's not around. Uh, I guess they could have gone better, but uh, I think it, I think it has actually been, been more challenging to be out of sync uh, rather than in sync. That's hilarious. Um, what, what sort of cyclical meeting structure do you have within within the organization? So at the moment, Fiona manages our team, which also makes sense because she's moving to India. So she has one-on-one meetings with several staff colleagues. We are trying to get better at organizing them in a way where she and I talk and then we kind of roll down and the meetings she has with others follows that. We also have a senior staff meeting on Monday afternoons. That's with Alex, the head of operations, Fiona and me. Again, going through what is our reflection from last week? What are we aiming to get done this week, especially the bits that need coordination? And also we have this gratitude section Fiona insists on, which is again about keeping us motivated. And I'm really bad at that. I usually start ranting halfway through. (laughs) 
So I think those are the big cycles. And then other than that, every Friday, we either have this Jai Pakora where we meet all of our team, India here and talk shop. And then every second week, I know our field team meets by themselves without us because it just allows them to also kind of went and, and, and talk shop without the senior team being on the call. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we also have an appreciation section at the start of all of our all of our team meetings. Which is, yeah, it makes them really fun, actually. <laughs> we, we both do like appreciation of things within 80,000 hours and also appreciation for like the for, for things in the broader world, which is yeah, important to keep in mind. Sure. Yeah, do, do you have all hands meetings? We have something called Panchayat. This is based on the, the Indian local system mm. of the village governance, which we try to organize every few months. And yeah. the idea there is that unlike Chai Pakora, which is where we all meet, but it's more talking shop, this is focused on ensuring everybody is on board with a certain strategy. If we are rolling out an HR policy around insurance, for instance, the last time we did it in the middle of COVID, making sure everybody of our staff has health insurance, they all understand what that is and, and, and what that could mean in terms of what they can avail of. It also allows them to question anything we're doing and, and offer feedback. Yeah. So it's more about getting people in sync than making decisions because it'd be too big a meeting to yeah be making decisions. Do you have any kind of, I suppose, perhaps a, a cycle where you set goals for like hire a particular number of people or send a particular number of messages and then you kind of evaluate that sometime later? Yeah, so we have these broader OKRs, which we set out for the year and then for every three months. And then within that, for instance, right now, our key focus is on improving our cost effectiveness and setting up our m and And then within that, we do have, for instance, what are the different iterations to improve our nomination process? So we have a whole dashboard of different ideas that everybody brainstorms on. And then we take up three and say, right. So for instance, one of the OKRs is, we need to increase the number of nominations by mm. a certain time. And we have a number there and we, we are holding ourselves accountable to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any times that you've noticed that, say, like the communication or the management structure is creating problems and then you kind of were able to you know, reorganize things and fix things up systematically? Yes, all the time. And especially because of COVID, I am quite you know, aware that there is you know, a physical boundary. And especially when you're working you know, across different cultures and across different income levels, I think it's a constant question for me. Are we all on the same page? Mm. And any decisions we make, are they being rolled over? What we are doing right now is rolling out a staff survey to get a better sense of feedback from all our colleagues to make sure that you know, what are the top areas we should be thinking more about. And we have some questions there on, do you feel sufficiently valued? Are you motivated when you wake up in the morning? So at least to start giving us, I mean, they're all anonymized, but to give us some ideas on areas we need to focus more on. In the past, health insurance was one where, you know, we hadn't thought of it. And then we got that input and feedback from a couple of team members who were getting scared about COVID. And then Mm. we were like, right, we need to to roll something out. In terms of systems and processes, I think we still, it's not been our top priority intentionally from on the HR side, because Mm. we want to get our product right first and then invest further. I think broadly our senses, our team is satisfied and happy. There's obviously a lot more we could do on that front in terms of staff motivation and HR systems and benchmarking and salaries. And that's all something we have deliberately, I think, deprioritized. Yeah, or do it later on. We're at a bigger scale. Makes sense. Where do you guys stand on the kind of delegation centralization thing? Like, are there areas that are just kind of handled down the line and you don't, you don't worry too much about them? 
Yes. So because we are focused so much on hiring the right people, the idea is these program managers, for instance, can then develop their own teams and take the work to the next level. There is the one-on-one calls they have with Fiona once a week to keep us updated and what the plans are. But we are very much working towards this decentralization model where they can then be responsible for their own budgets, especially because they have a clearer sense of the context on the ground and the government asks, they have a clearer sense of how soon they can, for instance, hire the next few people and what the timelines around them should be. Because we are still a fairly early stage startup, while we have these ambitions for decentralization, I think we still don't have those systems. So for instance, a lot of things still come through us in terms of for instance, even budgets, you know, somebody can't just go ahead and hire. It's it's still a decision made at our level, but that is our aspiration. All right. Well, yeah, you've exhausted exhausted all the questions that I had, so uh, we could wrap up. Maybe just last one is, do you have any book recommendations for someone in the audience who has enjoyed this interview and, and stuck with it through to the end? I think for anyone interested in global health and development, I would highly recommend the Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo's book, Poor Economics. It's 10 years old, but I still find it highly relevant and easy to understand. And at the time it came out, it overturned several myths around how people with less income make decisions, for instance. And I think it continues to be so highly relevant. So for anyone interested in evidence-based interventions, I think this book would be highly valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can second that recommendation. Yeah, I read that 10 years ago and, and really loved it. I think, yeah, we have a lot of social science-y, economics-y sort of people in the, in the audience. So I think, yeah, if, if you're one of them and you haven't read this yet, go out and get it. Well, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time and thanks so much for, you know, being adventurous and being willing to go and go and start something new. Yeah, I really love seeing people go out into the world and actually like try to make a difference on the ground. It's, uh, it's very cool and, and maybe something we haven't covered enough on the, on the show yet. So hopefully we'll be able to possibly even speak to the charity entrepreneurship people or perhaps some other, other organizations that, that go through it over the years and hear from their successes. And I guess actually also the failures. Maybe we should talk to some people who start charities and, and then decide to shut them down. It's a, yeah. That's uh, fair. Yeah. Cool. My guest today has been Vasha Venugopal. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Vasha. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to support Vasha and Savita, you can, of course, donate at savita.org. And as of when I'm recording this, they say they'll soon be advertising for the role of head of programs. If you could imagine switching job, we have currently got 765 vacancies listed on our job board at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. You can filter those down according to where you live, what problems you are interested to help solve, and what stage of your career you're at at the moment. That is 80,000hours.org slash jobs. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and now put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.